Thank you, George. And I think we'll just do about uh, for the next 40, 45 minutes. And let's see how far we can go. Perhaps about eight to nine questions. Um, so this is, uh, like George mentioned, this is the 33rd chapter in Discipleship Manual written by William uh, MacDonald. And we've been studying it over the last two years. And uh, so this is on page number 243. These questions are raised by William MacDonald on page number 243. We'd like to go through all of them biblically, uh, perhaps a few of them today. Uh, I request uh, everybody else to please mute your, uh, your microphones. So there's no disturbance for me here, please. Okay, so we'll go to the first question that's on page 243. The question says, the contemporary wisdom is that bigness is success. Church growth statistics emphasize large congregations. Is the size the criterion or is the holiness of the members? Good question. Um, healthy churches measure their well-being by their spiritual maturity, not merely on the, on the basis of numbers. When we look at the first few chapters of the book of Acts, um, those chapters tell us that large numbers believed in the Lord Jesus Christ. However, nowhere again in the narrative does Luke mention the size of any congregation that Paul visited in his missionary journeys. And moreover, no one knows for sure the size of uh, any congregation to which the epistles were written. We also uh, need to understand this, that early in the book of uh, Acts that Luke writes, there were 3,000 people who were added to the church on the day of Pentecost. And immediately following that, Luke is writing for us the formula for healthy churches. And George Chan talked about this a couple of weeks ago. He preached a sermon on this, uh, these very verses. Let me read for you these six verses, chapter 2 of Acts, verses 42 through 47. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day, those who are being saved. Now notice what is written here. The believers, the early believers, devoted themselves to Bible study, prayer, fellowship, and worship. They also shared everything with each other, even sold possessions to meet the needs of others and ate meals together. In other words, they lived out the gospel and they attracted the unsaved. There's a famous adage in English. Uh, it goes something like this, healthy things grow. Now there is some truth in that. Yes, healthy things grow. But churches must be careful not to deceive themselves into thinking they are healthy simply because there is numerical growth. Healthy churches do grow, yes, but not all growing churches are healthy. Furthermore, we must never look down upon any smaller or plateaued churches. Believers in smaller churches may exhibit greater spiritual maturity than believers in large churches. Nowadays, uh, especially in church growth terminology, the term church growth seems invariably synonymous 
Christmas with numerical growth. If the numbers increase, then the church is growing. If the numbers stay the same, then the church has reached a plateau. If the numbers go down, the church must be unhealthy. I think that kind of a thinking is oversimplistic. Contrary to this viewpoint, uh, healthy churches practice worship that focuses attention on God and preaching that fixes hearts and minds to the word of God. Healthy churches recognize the sovereignty of God and that true worship begins with an awareness of God's presence and power. And healthy churches do not confine worship to a couple of pockets of life. Worship involves total commitment to the Lord Jesus Christ in every aspect of daily life. And healthy churches have their members willingly and joyfully ministering to one another. In other words, just to summarize my answer, I want to say this, that healthy churches do in their personal, family, and corporate lives precisely what God wants them to do. And it makes no difference whether their number is 11 or 110 or 1100. Uh, just uh, a word about this. I've written more on this uh, on uh, uh, George, and I'm not sure how we're doing this. Uh, is there any other comments that, that somebody else wants to make, uh, or you want to make, or if Rabbi Chan is here? No, I, yeah, I think you can you can open it up to other comments or any clarifying questions anybody has, and then move on to yeah, the next sure. question. Okay. All right, okay, I think we'll do that. So, uh, so Raven, while uh, <clears throat> while what you said com makes complete sense, I think mm -hmm. we should also be mindful if a church has. Numbers dwindling constantly. Uh, there is the leadership should introspect what is going wrong and really look inward of what is what they could be doing wrong, maybe scripturally. And, oh, absolutely. Uh, of it. Absolutely. Yeah, completely agree with that. Uh, all we are saying here is that we shouldn't get into oversimplistic thinking. That's all. Okay. Uh, question number two. Let me read that for you. Proponents of the ecumenical movement say doctrine divides, service unites. How would you answer that? Not an easy question to deal with, uh, but let me first define for you what ecumenism is. I'm pretty sure most of you are aware of it and also have read about it, but there could be some of you who haven't, uh, who haven't come across this term perhaps or don't have an understanding of it. The terms ecumenism or ecumenical come from the Greek word Oikumene, which means the whole inhabited world. The word was historically used with specific reference to the Roman Empire. So it means the whole inhabited world. Ecumenism uh, has various shades to it, but I just want to talk about uh, Christian ecumenism. I think that is what, uh, what, that is what uh, William MacDonald is referring to here. Uh, ecumenism is any interdenominational initiative that encourages cooperation among Christians and their churches, regardless of the differences in doctrine, and says they must all come together for a common cause, especially a social cause. So the ecumenical vision usually is a search for the visible unity of the church, although there couldn't be unity in the doctrines that they believe in. There is unity in the visible aspects of it is what they say. Uh, now, by the way, that itself is a doctrine, and we need to be mindful of that. Also, I want to present here uh, the relationship between what is a doctrine and its relationship to Christian life. Christian life is a result of doctrine. Christian life is an outflow of doctrine. In fact, in 1 Timothy uh, 6.3, Paul says this, 
uh, there is a doctrine that confirms to or results in godliness. There's a doctrine that confirms to or results in godly behavior. That's the language that Paul uses, which means that Christian life is a result of doctrine. It's an outflow of doctrine. And in a sense, uh, we need to agree with the fact that doctrine does divide. And the reason is we are called to discern right doctrine from wrong doctrine. Uh, Paul tells Titus in chapter 2, um, I think it's in verse 1, he says, But as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. That is the exhortation he gives Titus. Second John verse 9, uh, John says, Everyone who goes on ahead and does not abide in the teaching of Christ does not have God. Whoever abides in the teaching has both the Father and the Son. Uh, Romans 16, 17, Paul says, I appeal to you, brothers, to watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine that you've been taught. And Paul says, avoid them. So in a sense, doctrine does divide because we are called, we are exhorted as Christians to discern what is right from what is wrong. Now, there are a few things that we need to consider here when we think about ecumenism. And these are, these are my thoughts on this. Number one, if you and I have a high view of scripture, then it calls us to treasure all that God has said in scripture. Number two, if we have a respect for church history and all that, have, that our predecessors have fought for uh, to preserve as doctrines for us, then, um, then we must respect that. Number three, uh, many secondary doctrines, the so-called secondary doctrines are also vitally related to the gospel. And number four, all truth shapes how we think and live in subtle but important ways. All truth, it shapes how we think and live in subtle but very important ways. So having said all these things, I want to come to ecumenism and say ecumenism simply doesn't work because like I said, actions are an outflow of theology. But do we hate the other side because they don't agree with us on certain doctrines? The answer is no. We are called to love one another. Uh, by this, they'll know you're my disciples. If you love one another, said Jesus, we are called to love everybody in spite of our differences in doctrines and theology. Now, the important question comes, how do we decide then when to partner with other denominations and, and other Christians? Uh, I think this is, a, this is a really complicated area to tackle in the next five minutes or 10 minutes. So I don't want to get into that. But I think probably... Uh, this could be a discussion personally when we when we meet up or things like that. That's not an answer that can be handled right here. Yeah, Raven, I'd like to hear uh, Rebichan's perspective on this, uh, especially on that last point. I know you didn't want to get into this, but but what are some principles we can follow in deciding when to you know participate with others and when not to or where to draw the line? Yes, Rebichan. Um, it was mostly about how to decide when to connect with other uh, people of other doctrines and such. I would say it depends on the context in which we operate. So in certain situations, uh, you cooperate on a large scale with um, on evangelism. With certain others, you would do it on discipleship. With certain others on teaching. So I would say it, would, it has... It's a judgment call that has to be made by the church leadership. And uh, as individuals, when we cooperate with other uh, 
people from other denominations or faith backgrounds. You just need to exercise your wisdom and maybe talk to others. You know, the, on a limited uh, on a limited scale, we can um, uh, uh, cooperate with everyone, even as we do for our work and stuff with uh, secular people. And then on certain other things, we can uh, cooperate with nominal Christians. Then on certain inner circle with all Protestant background, you know, the circle uh, grows. Um, narrower and not narrower as we go into the field in which we are cooperating. But whatever be our uh, doctrines, when we come to the practice of love, that should be there across board. Okay, Any, anybody else has comments on this ecumenism, please? Yeah, I, I think Raven, just one comment uh, uh, yeah, I sure. would like to make. You know, there's, as you said rightly, there are many different shades of ecumenism. Mm -hmm. You know, uh, and uh, there's something called wider ecumenism, which is basically, uh, you know, it's, uh, I don't know if you all remember, we had a couple of camps at the ECC, the Ecumenical Christian Center. And those folks follow this wider ecumenism, which is pretty much, uh, you know, sort of an extreme form of ecumenism where uh, they, um, uh, they pretty much believe that all religions are the same and they're different paths to God. Uh, and all that, right? So that's obviously very dangerous theology. We can really go along along with that. So, so there's different shades. As I said, there are some groups which are sort of at one extreme, which uh, or at a different level, which is just you know that uh, that we believe in cooperating with others, and then all the way to where you know they just remove all distinctions, say all religions are different ways to get to the same goal, right? So we just need to understand where people stand and, and what their key core doctrines are when we make those kind of decisions, you know, on how much we uh, cooperate and how much we uh, participate in things together. Yeah, thank you, Jorchan. Can I move on to my third question? Yeah. Okay. Uh, I'll read the question for you. It says, in many Pentecostal and charismatic meetings, the speaker touches a person and he is, quote unquote, slain in the spirit, falling to the floor. Here again, we need discernment. Where do you find that in the Bible? Well, uh, since the question says, where do you find that in the Bible? Let's begin by saying you don't find that anywhere in the Bible. Um, for those of you who are not familiar with what slain in the spirit is, let me explain that. Uh, most commonly, being slain in the spirit happens when a minister lays hands on someone and that person collapses to the floor, supposedly overcome by the power of the Holy Spirit or the movement of the Holy Spirit and all that. Um, you don't find that anywhere in the Bible. Uh, here is what used to happen in the Bible. People prostrated, uh, by that I mean they fell face down forward volitionally out of their own will in awe in the presence of God. That was an act of worship. And when people did that, they were fully in control of themselves. For example, in Ezekiel chapter 1, when he sees the glory of God, Ezekiel says, and when I saw it, I fell on my face and I heard the voice of one speaking. You see the same thing in Daniel chapter 8, uh, when he was given a vision and uh, the angel Gabriel approaches him to talk more about that vision. Uh, he says, when the angel approached me, 
I was frightened and I fell on my face. Same thing in Daniel chapter 10 as well. You also remember something that is very familiar to us in Matthew 17 on the Mount of Transfiguration. When the disciples heard the voice of God from heaven, um, this is my beloved son. In him I'm welcome to listen to him. Uh, it says, when the disciples heard this, they fell on their faces and they were terrified. Uh, and you go to the book of Revelation chapter 1, uh, uh, the apostle on the Isle of Patmos, when he, had, when he saw Jesus Christ there, he says, I saw him and I fell at his feet as though dead. Uh, this is the opposite of what you typically see uh, that people experience when they claim to be slain in the spirit today. Uh, uh, in which case a person usually falls backward as a result of the spiritual movement. But in the Bible, usually uh, falling backwards is a sign of judgment. If you remember in 1 Samuel 4, uh, when the ark of God was captured and uh, the news comes to Eli, uh, Eli was a big man. Uh, he was sitting on a chair and he fell backwards from his seat by the side of the gate is what it says, and his neck broke and he died. Um, so that's a sign of judgment. You fall backwards. Same thing you see in Isaiah 28. Same thing you see, I think most probably, this is the interpretation in John 18, 6, when people come to arrest Jesus and Jesus says, uh, I am, and, and they fall backwards. They go back. Main issue would be that, um, you know, the slain in spirit has no scriptural background. And it's mostly a part of what we call torrent of blessings. It is not a blessing from the scripture. And, you know, you falling prostrate before someone is an act of worship. Uh, but uh, in some cases, it's an act of judgment if you're falling before the Lord. Uh, but it's not a blessing just to be that the pastor goes over with his hand and the whole uh, congregation falls. We don't find that anywhere. Okay, uh, we'll go to the next question. Question four. Add to this the healing campaigns where the TV evangelist professes to lengthen legs, deliver from cancer, and solve many other physical problems. Don't we believe in divine healing? Yes, we do. But we also know that many faith healers indulge in crafty methods that stimulate healings. Okay, uh, I think this is a very important question and also a very, very sensitive question. So we want to be sensitive to the other side and to everybody. And uh, we also want to see what the Bible says about it as well. Um, first of all, I think we need to define what the gift of healing is. The gift of healing is the supernatural manifestation of the Spirit of God that miraculously brings healing and deliverance from disease Usually, immediately, it happens instantaneously. Let me give you a couple of examples from the New Testament. Uh, remember Acts chapter 3. Peter and John were going to the temple, and uh, there was a man at the gate who was crippled from birth. He expected to get something from them. And uh, Peter looks at him and says, uh, gold or silver I don't have, but what I have I give you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, get up and walk. And if you read the text, it says the man leaped to his feet and ran into the temple. You know, instantaneous. That's the gift of healing. Also, you see uh, in the book of Acts, should be in chapter 19, Paul's handkerchief and aprons were taken and they were put on the people who were suffering and, uh, and deceased. And they were healed immediately. That is the gift of healing. Now, having said that, I want to distinguish between what is the gift of healing 
and what is intercession for healing. The gift of healing is what I just described now. On the other hand, there is something called the intercession for healing, which we all do. And uh, we, are, we are commanded to do, we are exhorted to do intercession for other people. In fact, uh, that's exactly why we have a whole prayer group for it. You know, uh, We have uh, some disease, some kind of an illness. We put out a request asking for prayer for the other saints to intercede on our behalf for healing. Now, that is a wholly different thing. Uh, the New Testament exhorts that. The New Testament recommends that. In fact, the New Testament also goes on to say that uh, you can call your elders home and uh, they will anoint you with oil and pray, pray over you as well. And in the same context, it goes on to say that the effective fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. But here's a distinction that we are trying to make. There is a gift of healing, but there's also the intercession for healing. And what we are doing right now uh, in our churches and all of that is intercession for healing. And we need to understand the difference. Uh, as William McDonald says, yes, we believe that God heals. He heals according to his purposes. And in healing us, he may use various means as well, like medicines, surgeries, um, answers to intercessions, or even a miracle perhaps. Uh, he's our Jehovah Rapha, and we believe that God is able to heal. And although God does uh, still heal today, we believe that this particular gift of healing belonged primarily to the apostles of the first century. It was not intended, now hear me please, it was not intended as a permanent way to keep the Christian community in perfect health. No, that was not the reason why the gift of healing was given. The gift of healing had a purpose. It was primarily to affirm that the message that the apostles were preaching was from God. It was to affirm their message. Uh, let me quote a couple of verses for you. Acts chapter 2 verse 22, talking about Jesus. Uh, it says, men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God. And how was he attested? With mighty works, wonders, and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. Acts 14.3. Uh, so they remained there for a long time, speaking boldly for the Lord, that is the apostles, uh, who bore witness to the word of his grace, granting signs and wonders to be done by their hands. Now the question comes up. Uh, what is all that is happening here in the Christian world, especially on television? And I think most of them are something called psychosomatic healings. People who prime, whose primary problems are psychosocial in nature, they respond positively to placebo effects, such as faith healers. In fact, uh, when you look at any healing atmosphere or healing campaigns, the entire atmosphere of the Crusades is orchestrated to build to a climax when the faith healer would come and appear at the end with a healing touch, and uh, there seems to be that many are healed. But not all are healed. Uh, not, uh, I don't think anybody is healed at all there, uh, because having a person stand on stage and claim that he's got some kind of a healing from cancer or some kind of an ailment does not prove anything, or does not prove that the healing has actually taken place. Such healings uh, should be verified by a qualified physician, using proper medical studies. Now, this is not to say that God does not heal or cannot heal, but we're just talking about all that's happening in the name of healing in all these large, huge crusades. I just want to quote one uh, HBO special documented. Uh, uh, it is a documentary made uh, on Benny Hinn's crusade in Portland, Oregon. 
on the stage, uh, Benny Hinn allegedly performed 76 miracles. And the documentary's producers asked the ministry for the names of all the people who were healed, supposedly healed, so they could go and verify. 13 weeks later, after the question was raised, only five names were sent by the ministry to the producers of the documentary. And these people went and investigated all the people. Uh, and upon investigation, there was no actual healing at all. And one case especially was very grim. It was a case of a 10-year-old boy. He was actually an Indian. His name was Ashmil Prakash. He was stricken with two brain tumors. And despite the healing that was pronounced by Benny Hinn, and also despite the pledge that was made by his impoverished parents to give thousands of dollars to Benny Hinn's ministry, the child died in seven weeks after the Crusades. Um, so that is what happened in that one instance. And of course, some of them are outright fakes. James Randi, uh, who's a magician in his book, Faith Healers, he documents many of the tactics used to deceive the gullible people. And some are as simple as placing their own staff members in the audience who pretend to be healed and all of that. But I just want to talk about what is the problem with these healing campaigns. Number one, the problem is people are hurt. False hope is actually devastating. Uh, there's a man by the name of Brian Darby who works with handicapped people in uh, Northern California. And he said this about people who go with a hope to such crusades and don't end up getting healed. He said this, you can't minimize the impact of not being healed on the person, the family and the extended family. They have a sense of euphoria at the crusade and then they come crashing down. So people are hurt. Number two, others might stop taking essential medication thinking that they had been healed without any medical verification. And that's a very dangerous thing to do, especially for terminal diseases and things that need constant medication. Number three, I also think, and uh, let me say this very humbly, that such things dishonor Christ and the church. Uh, but to talk about just practical terms and uh, to bring the Bible to our practical level of application. If I were to get five people who have the most grim diseases, terminal diseases, for example, cancer or even COVID-19 and all these things, five people on the one hand. On the other hand, if I were to bring five people who are the worst sinners in all the world, um, people who are drunkards, adulterers, murderers, and everyone, or five people, if these five people, the first set of five people were to pray with all of their heart, for the Lord to heal them. I think only those people who would be uh, only those people would be healed whom the Lord purposes to heal. Not everybody would be healed. It could be the case that all five would go on to die, perhaps. But on the other hand, when you look at the other five people who are the worst sinners, and they come to God and they repent of their sin and they ask for forgiveness of sin, and they come in need for salvation. And you and I know very well that all of the five people would be saved. Which goes on to show that in this phase of church life, I think the greatest miracle is the miracle of a new birth. And God grants it to anyone who would faithfully and truly comes to him uh, in repentance. Uh, that's what I would say about uh, this question. Comments from your side, please. 
That's very well answered, Ravent. I think the, the key point I like there is uh, the, the one that you made early on. Maybe you can repeat that. But you said that the gift of healing was not to make Christians to be without disease, but to uh, you know, affirm the... Yeah, yeah, the purpose. Can you just repeat that statement? I, th I thought it was very, uh, very apt and insightful. I think I said uh, the gift of healing um, was not to make Christians pain-free or mm. to make the Christian community remain in perfect health, but it had a yep. purpose. And that was primarily to affirm the message that they were preaching. Yeah, and that point that God doesn't intend for us to be in perfect health is, is we find elsewhere in scripture as well, right? Absolutely. We, we find yeah. them all and the thorn in the flesh and throughout the thing. I, th I think one of the reasons why people go after these kind of faith healers is simply because they believe that, you know, that, uh, <clears throat> that life is about that perfect health and uh, the kind of things that really we can't realize until we're in eternity and, and out of this world, right? So, uh, so I think that's important. And Revan, you mentioned placebo effect. Placebo is just, you know, you give any pill to anybody. Placebo is a pill without medicine. Mm -hmm. So when you come um, saying that you're sick and the doctor gives a, gives a tablet, which is not actually a medicine, the patient takes it and after a couple of days, the patient feels uh, well. Why? Because the uh, real um, healing is the psychosomatic healing that uh, you're talking about. So um, it is a very absurd phenomenon. Um, in medical practitioners. Hi, Anna. Um, I just wanted to ask, uh, how are we to respond to uh, the large volume of uh, operations that do what you just discussed? Um, would it be, would it, there are a lot of people that we know who are a part of congregations like this who stand for it and uh, pursue it religiously. Um, mm -hmm. So is it, uh, is it, um, should, are, we, are we as a church or as a Christian to take, uh, a, to, to, to make any a proactive uh, stance against it and vocalize our, uh, what we think? Or, or what is, how do we, how do we uh, attack this? Uh, Shashank, a good question. Yes, uh, there are a lot of churches that promote this. Um, I think uh, the antidote to all of these things is the right understanding of the word. Um, and that's why, you know, we promote the right teaching. We promote the right interpretation of the word. Uh, we also talk about the right doctrines. We started with that. Um, the reason is that uh, the right doctrine gives us the right hope. Right doctrine helps us in our godliness. Um, doctrines like these give us false hope. Um, and, uh, and that is to our detriment, in fact, both spiritually and even physically. You, you just heard that one person, a 10-year-old boy, died. Out of uh, because of uh, he succumbed to two brain tumors, so there are dangerous things to that that kind of uh, theology. Um, but I think we must approach everybody in love. Uh, our words need to be seasoned with salt, very graceful. I don't think we need to debate about such things. Uh, I am not for public debates on topics like these, but on a on a church level, something like these, um, talking about it from the biblical perspective in a mature way would be the right thing to do. Or, or perhaps on a one-on-one -on -one small Bible studies, we can teach the people. But I also would want to say that uh, if you and I are supporting such ministries, 
unknowingly, I think we should stop supporting such ministries. Uh, and in one sense, not also listen to them when they come on television. That's what I would say. Levant, uh, I have a question. Um, yes, I was asking from a non-Christian perspective. Okay, having seen, I'm I'm only speak about what I've seen with regards mm -hmm. to a lot of practices in the Hindu religion. There are a lot of these um, saints or like these um, babas, is what they call themselves, who mm -hmm. also do similar work. Right, where there's like a placebo effect and that people feel like they're healed or, you know, uh, things like that. And I had um, asked this with uh, a, a pastor way, way before I came to CBS. Uh, because uh, all these videos that I saw of Benny Hinn and all of that used to actually put me off. Uh, but when I asked him, I said, uh, what about these people? You know, other religions also have uh, healing. So what are you talking about? Uh, um, so then he said, uh, this is what I want to clarify. He said, Satan also has powers and these people are possessed by Satan and hence they're able to um, heal these people. Uh, I'm not willing to kind of accept that. Like you mentioned, uh, the Lord chooses who to heal in his time, right? And uh, to see everybody as his children, uh, if there is someone who is healed irrespective of uh, you know, I don't know, uh, uh, these babas interceding or something like that. Um, I don't, I'm, I'm just trying to, um, you know, make sense of this. Um, thing. How does it work for other religions? Okay. Uh, I think if the question merely is, does God heal unbelievers? Does God heal people from mm -hmm. other religions? Uh, the answer is absolutely yes. Uh, if there's any healing in the world, either through medication or anything, the ultimate first source is God himself. Uh, healing comes from God, um, whether it's a believer or an unbeliever. Um, so in his common grace, yes, he does heal people. And that's why there are so many people al alive in the world. You know, uh, Jesus mm -hmm. says this. He makes his rain fall upon both the wicked and the evil. You know, uh, And then he calls his son to shine upon both the wicked and the evil. So there is that common grace of God in which he does heal people. Now, coming specifically to Babas and all of that, um, I think that's a very strong statement to stay possessed by Satan. But I would say there is definitely demonic influence in some of these things. Of course, there's a placebo effect as well. But uh, there is a lot of demonic influence. Uh, the Bible says that Satan masquerades himself as angel of light. And uh, we need to be careful says the Bible about the schemes of the devil. That's the word that is used. Yeah, I, I think uh, I think we shouldn't discount the power of the devil. He certainly, you know, we see examples in scripture of the devil possessing certain people and making them do certain things. Um, so, so there is uh, definitely that to some extent. Um, I just want to go back to Shashank's uh, point about, um, you know, should we be proactive? I, I don't think we should do that at the level of a church, I think what we do need to do, though, is, is at an individual level, when we do have people that are in these things, if we have opportunity to talk to them, to be friends with them, uh, you know, it's, it's important that, uh, that we try to, you know, bring them to the truth, right? Uh, and one more thing, even at these many hidden places and all, uh, you know, they do, at least some of them, they do actually preach the gospel. 
and there might very well be people who are who get some light maybe they even get saved but then they get caught up in some of the wrong doctrines there. so uh, and i'm not people who've maybe gotten saved or heard the gospel for the first time uh, at one of these uh, you know crusades where they had a lot of false teachings and then later on the lord brought them out of that and into the truth uh, of of the you know solid teaching um, so i i think uh, you know, I think the Lord can certainly, God can certainly use those things to some extent. Um, so rather than, you know, fight them and try to make it and do it in a public way, I think we need to deal with it on a one-on-one -on -one basis and try to disciple those folks out of that false teaching and into the truth. Okay. Um, yeah, Ravichan, you want to add something? Yes, yeah, Sheetal's question probably. Yeah. Can you hear yeah. me? Hello? Yeah. Yeah, Thank we you. can. Uh, Sheetal, I think you had a question like um, uh, can healing come from Satan or uh, demons and it is observed that you know even here in this place where I am uh, lots of people make uh, the agents of demons basically their first choice in times of uh, illnesses and all that uh, uh, but how do we explain that? What ex what what is the probable explanation behind it? Uh, you know, if you cause some trouble to somebody, and then you also are in the are in a position to withdraw that. Anytime what we see in the demonic uh, healing process would be demon playing against each other, one another. Uh, so, some, so you, you also see that one of them goes to a certain kind of Baba, then someone goes to a Baba with much higher power, etc. All these kind of things is a play in the uh, kingdom of darkness. And we just need to leave it at that and uh, don't get too much uh, focused on that. Yeah. Am I clear or do you have uh, more doubts on that? I mean, I think it's very tough to get them to see it. And I think my resolution was to pray because I, I mean, that's the only thing that I thought could move somebody to see the truth. Um, I don't think there's any point in getting into even a, an argument or a discussion about yeah. it because they wouldn't be able to see it. Yeah, you're, you're right, Sheetal. I mean, I, I think, look, God has to give somebody the light, you know, because, uh, you know, we are dead in our sins and trespasses. Right, and, and the Lord has to uh, quicken them and, and bring them to that point. I think praying for them, continuing to, to communicate the gospel and uh, show them the love of Christ, these are all important things. And, and, we, and, and to Repton's points, you know, we shouldn't diminish the power of the kingdom of darkness because you know, in Ephesians mm -hmm. 6, we're told that we do not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers. Uh, you know, of the air, right? So, so that battle is definitely there. And in some places you see it a lot more than others. And that's what Rabbi Chen was referring to, where he is, uh, he has seen that for, for real. Uh, and some of us have heard mm. those stories. You know, so it is, it is very real. Uh, and it is quite powerful. Right. Yeah, I just want to add Thank one, I, I just want to add one um, experience of my father-in-law, Asha's father, uh, he's written a book in Malayalam called Ashiki Virodhamai Ashiyode, that is 
hoping against hope. So his own sister was um, uh, was under cancer, and they had given around two weeks for her to leave. This was by uh, Dr. Gangadharan, the real oncologist in those days in Kerala, and how he came out of. Uh, he went and prayed with her, and uh, during those days, the Lord gave her gave him a special a leading to pray for her uh, with the uh, politics of figs and he did that and there was a lot of um, things that happened along with it and finally uh, she was completely healed she's still alive um, this happened maybe around 40 years back he has written a book on that and also he has had um, many others where he was uh, where people were very sick he went and prayed uh, some of you know Ebi Vergis in Bilai. His grandfather's um, leg was to be amputated. He went and prayed and you know, got healed. So many things have happened. But if you ask my father-in-law, he says, I don't have the gift of healing. I'm prompted to pray for certain people and then it happens. Mm. Okay, his own brother died of cancer. He prayed for him. Another sister's daughter died of cancer. He prayed for that person and his own grandson my my son had cancer he prayed and he said go ahead with the treatment a lot healed him but it was through medical treatment so uh, we should not put god into a box and say that he's healing all the time and he's a servant at our beck and call to come and heal is a point at which many people get confused that's why let's proceed to the next if no one has a question Okay, next question. Question number five. The prosperity doctrine takes promises of material prosperity in the Old Testament and applies them to the church today. Is it correct to do so? Uh, the simple answer is no. You can't take the material promises of the Old Testament and apply them to the church today. Um, but uh, we just don't, don't want to leave it there. Uh, let me just also describe and explain five errors of prosperity gospel and how they apply scripture from the Old Testament and try to justify their position. The first thing they do is they think that the covenant that God made with Abraham, uh, you remember Genesis 12 is the first place where he makes his covenant with Abraham, Genesis 12, one to three. Uh, there he gives three promises uh, in terms of three categories, uh, land, a seed, and a blessing. So they take that Abrahamic covenant as a means to material blessing for believers. And to support this claim, prosperity teachers appeal to Galatians chapter 3, verse 14. And here is what that verse says The blessings of Abraham come upon the Gentiles in Christ Jesus, but they stop right there. And it's very interesting, however, uh, those who appeal to this particular verse. They ignore the second half of the verse, and that says that we might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. So what Paul is saying here in the context is that the blessings of Abraham come upon the Gentiles in Christ Jesus, and we receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. So he is talking about the spiritual blessings of salvation, not the material blessings of wealth or land that uh, was promised in the Abrahamic covenant. That's number one. Number two, uh, the, faith, uh, the prosperity gospel preachers also say that 
in the atonement of Jesus, the sin, quote-unquote sin, of material poverty was also paid for. Um, Prosperity Gospel claims that both physical healing and financial prosperity have been provided for in the atonement. We don't see that anywhere in the New Testament. In fact, we see quite the opposite. You see the life of Jesus. Jesus himself said, uh, foxes have holes, the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. You see the family into which he was born. You see the kind of sacrifices parents gave at the temple when he was being circumcised. See, they were poor people. Jesus was a poor man. Um, also, in uh, one verse comes to mind here. Second Corinthians 8, 9, Paul says this. Uh, Remember the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Though he was rich, yet for our sakes he became poor, so that we through his poverty might become rich. There he's not talking about financial uh, prosperity, but the fact that Jesus left all his richness of heaven, he came down and became poor, was so that we could have the spiritual riches in Christ Jesus. That's what Paul is talking about. But, uh, uh, the faith, I'm sorry, the prosperity preachers are wrong when they say that um, the sin of material poverty has been uh, paid for on the cross. No, you don't see that. That's, an, that's the second thing. Number three uh, is they say that Christians give financially uh, in order to get material compensation from God, and they call it the law of compensation. Um, there are several verses that they use, especially Mark 10.30 and all of that. And they say Christians should use generously uh, their money to give to others and to give to God. Because when they do, God gives back more in return. And this becomes a never-ending cycle. The more you give, the more you get back and all of that. Um, you know, Jesus taught his disciples this uh, in Luke 6.35. He said, give hoping for nothing in return. So we don't give with the hope that we would get more in return, but uh, we give as the Lord has prospered us joyfully because the Lord gives a the Lord uh, uh, blesses uh, and respects a cheerful giver. And uh, I think uh, the prosperity theology has got this wrong, saying that uh, we need to give for the sake of getting back more from God. That's the third thing. The fourth thing is. They see faith as a self-generated spiritual force that leads to prosperity. What is faith? Faith, first of all, is a gift from God. Faith is also something that you need to muster up. That's a human responsibility. Uh, in the prosperity theology, faith is not a God-granted, God-centered act of the will. Rather, it is something that is contrived and made up by the human will. It's a spiritual force that is directed at God and you can ask God for anything and he would give you material gains because you have mustered up by yourself so much faith. It's a spiritual force that is directed at God. Uh, no, the Bible does not say that. The Bible says that uh, faith is the occasion. Uh, you are justified before God. Faith is a means by which you are sanctified, uh, but it is not any means for material gain from God. Uh, lastly, fifthly, uh, they say that prayer is a tool to force God to grant prosperity. Um, James 4.2 is usually quoted. We, have, we don't have it because we don't ask. Uh, they encourage to pray for personal success in all areas of life. The interesting thing is, again, they miss out. Now, look at the context. They miss out the second part of James's teaching on prayer. He says, you ask and you don't receive because you ask amiss. Or in other words, you ask nonsense. 
to spend on your own passions is what James says. Uh, so God does not answer selfish requests that don't honor his name. And that's very clear in the New Testament. So uh, when you talk about faith, uh, prosperity gospel preachers, whether you're talking about the Abrahamic covenant or the teaching on the atonement or giving or faith or prayer, uh, they turn the relationship between God and man into a quid pro quo kind of a transaction. And that is, that is not something that is uh, warranted by the Bible. Jesus warned us, watch out, be on guard against all kinds of greed, he said. A man's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. Um, he also said in sharp contrast to the, uh, the prosperity gospel preachers, do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. I think, I think there is irreconcilable contradiction between the prosperity uh, gospel teaching and the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. And I think it's best summed up in the words of Jesus himself. You cannot serve both God and money. You cannot serve both God and money. So that's where I would leave it. Any thoughts from your, your side, please? Okay. So, Revit, I think time is up. So, uh, we already yep. got through what? Five, six, five? Five, yeah. Yeah. So, we could probably pick this up in another session later. Um, sure. And if folks have more questions, I guess they can submit more questions as well, right? Mm hmm. <laughs> प्रभु ये हमारा सौभाग्य है प्रभु कि हम इस प्रकार इतने दूर बैठ के भी प्रभु हम एक साथ मिल पा रहे हैं प्रभु और कुछ ऐसे बातों पर प्रभु हम प्रभु जी डिस्कशन कर पा रहे हैं जो प्रभु हमारे आसपास हो रही है प्रभु हमारे क्रिश्चियन कम्युनिटी में हो रहा है प्रभु हम हम आपसे प्रार्थना करते हैं प्रभु कि प्रभु जी हम उन बातों पर प्रभु जी हम अपने आप को प्रभु जी प्रभु जी लीन ना करने पाए प्रभु पर हमारी सहायता कर प्रभु कि हम आपकी और आपकी महिमा के लिए प्रभु हम अपने हम जिस जिस का जिन कार्यों को भी प्रभु हम करते हैं प्रभु प्रभु जी बाइबल के प्रभु जी बाइबल को प्रभु जी हम उसे समझ के उसे प्रभु प्रीति से प्रभु जी आपकी इच्छा के अनुसार प्रभु हम करने वाले होने पाए पिता हम आपसे प्रार्थना करते हैं धन्यवाद प्रभु आपने रेवंत भैया को इन क्वेश्चंस को तैयार करने के लिए प्रिय प्रभु आपने सहायता किया और धन्यवाद प्रभु हमारे एल्डर्स के लिए प्रभु जी उन्होंने प्रभु इस डिस्कशन को प्रभु सामने लाया प्रभु और हमें प्रभु जी से प्रभु जी से इसमें से समझने के लिए प्रिय प्रभु आपने सहायता किया इसलिए आपका धन्यवाद प्रभु जो भी आज कनेक्ट किया प्रभु उन सबों के लिए प्रभु आपका धन्यवाद करते हैं प्रभु आपने संभाल प्रभु इस समय जब हम प्रभु सब अपने घरों पर हैं प्रभु आप में इस इस समय को प्रभु बखूबी इस्तेमाल करने के लिए और जिन जिन सीखों को प्रभु आज हमने सुना प्रभु प्रभु जी हमारे हमारा प्रभु जी हमारा जीवन किस प्रकार का है प्रभु हमें रिएक्जामाइन करने के लिए प्रिय प्रभु इन समय में आप हमारी सहायता कर और प्रभु होने पाए प्रभु जब जब ये प्रभु जी सब कुछ खत्म हो जाएगा प्रभु हम हम एक नई रीति से प्रभु जी अपनी जिंदगी को जीने वाले होने पाए जहाँ पे प्रभु आप प्रभु जी आप प्रभु जी हमारे जीवन में प्रथम स्थान लेने वाले होने पाए पिता हम आपसे प्रार्थना करते हैं धन्यवाद प्रभु आपने प्रार्थना सुना आदर और सम्मान वापिक अर्पण करते हैं प्रार्थना प्रभु ईश्वर के नाम में मांगते हैं हम